What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Super excited about our guest today. Had a chance to have her on the show not too long ago and pleased to have her return. Elle Jones is a poet, journalist, professor, and activist living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She teaches at Mount St. Vincent University, where she was named the 15th Nancy's Chair in Women's Studies in 2017. She was Halifax's Poet Laureate from 2013 to 2015. She's the author of Live from the African Resistance, a collection of poems about resisting white colonialism. Her work focused focuses on social justice issues such as feminism, prison abolition, anti-racism, and decolonization. Her latest book, which we will be discussing today, is Abolitionist Intimacies. Hello, Elle, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Really excited for the conversation. Elle, I always ask my guests a bit about their childhood and family um, to start, but in your case, your lineage, childhood, and uh, location or placement, if you will, in the African diaspora is directly connected to your political development. You're a Trinidadian. Um, talk to me about the impact of coming or your family coming from a place once colonized, seeing the independence come in your mother's lifetime, and how that shaped the politics of your family and guided your trajectory to becoming an abolitionist. Yeah, well, that's a big question. So my mother is in Trinidad and my father's actually Welsh. They met in Wales. So both colonized countries, um, but particularly on my mother's side. Um, so my grandfather was a sort of towering political figure in my life. He was a, cal- I never met him. So he died long before I was born, but the legend of my grandfather was repeated to me many times. He was a Calypsonian, um, which is obviously the political music of Trinidad. It used to be known as kind of like, the, the it would be like the Twitter of Trinidad in like the 1940s and 1950s. Um, so he sang uh, Calypso Sans Humanité, uh, which had the lyrics, uh, England and Germany preach democracy, brotherly love and fraternity, yet they leave us living here in this colony sans humanité. Um, he was threatened with sedition charges for singing those lyrics on the eve of World War II. Um, he was also a fireworks maker because he was a chemist who was obviously denied the opportunity to actually have academic qualifications. And he was a extremely brilliant man. Um, so that side of my family, that political activity was really uh, something that was taught to me from birth. And then on the other side was my grandmother, um, who was a very saintly woman and lived a life of service, as you know, many of our black grandmothers do. Um, But you know, somebody that's left her door open, and when people stole from her, she'd say, well, they must have needed that. So she really embodied service to your community. And then my grandfather really embodied this political voice. Um, He was a trade unionist. He was anti-war very famously. When he saw the troops marching to war, he said, what are you doing? And they said, we're marching for king and country. He said, you have a king? You have a country? Um, So these stories, and my mother never really put it in terms of race. Like she wasn't a race person, but she was very strong on family history. Um, So when I became old enough to put those pieces together with political history, with race, with understanding colonization, that really formed a background for not only giving me an understanding of the world and, you know, so because then I started asking questions like, you know, because my aunt was the first black girl to go to the convent school and eventually asked the question, well, why weren't black girls allowed to go before that? You know what I mean? So uh, we had all these kind of stories that my mom really told to us with the object of being like, get an education and you can succeed, but had the impact of really radicalizing me politically. 
my older sister was an incredibly important person in my political development because she started reading black books and I used to sneak into her room and steal those books. <laughs> so I stole Malcolm X from her. I stole like Angela Davis from her. So she'd be like, where's my books? They'd go missing. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I had them in my room. So I read those at quite a young age as well. And then as well, my family's a matriarchy. So until very recently, we only had one boy a generation. So the woman in my family, and as many uh, Caribbean women were, like people that left home to go work as domestics in New York and, you know, spent their money sending clothes back so that people could survive and packing up food at Christmas. So there was this whole, um, like, in my family, just women taking care of other women. And that really grounded me in Black feminism. Um, you know, when my mother, to the end of like to very, very recently, you know, her 90 year old great aunt in New York who worked as a domestic would be sending $20 at Christmas, like long after my mom needed it, because she would send that to everybody to make sure that people had an ability to get a Christmas. So this kind of self-sacrifice also really taught me about feminist communal care. So those histories really, once I put them together, really yeah, like motivated me into political action. And I really understood what those lineages are and also what we owe the past and how those narratives carry us forward. You say in the early pages of the book that you uh, became an abolitionist at the age of 13. Tell us that story. Yeah, so when I, I was growing up on the bookshelf, there was two books. One was Boswell's Life of Johnson, and the other was the collected works of Oscar Wilde, and they were like these huge books. So I always understood them as like these adult books. They were like out of reach. And then when I was about 13, we went to Trinidad for my grandmother's 90th birthday, and there's not a lot you're allowed to do. You're not allowed to roam around by yourself. So you have to read. And I saw an aud- a biography of Oscar Wilde on the shelf and I picked it up and read it because I recognize Oscar Wilde. So I was like, okay, I'm going to read that. And I was very, very conscious of reading something adult that, you know, this, was a, this wasn't a youth book or a children's book. This was something adult. So I was primed for this. And in that book, it quoted a significant amount of Ballad of Reading Jail. So of course, Oscar Wilde was incarcerated for being gay by under the Uh, sodomy laws that still exist in countries around the globe in the formerly colonized countries that Britain colonized. Um, And he wrote a poem about prisons. And some of the lines were, I know not whether laws be right or whether laws be wrong. All that we know that lie in jail is that the wall is strong and that each day lasts like a year, a year whose days are long. This too I know and well it were that each should know the same, that every prison that men build is built with bricks of shame and bound with bars lest Christ should see how men their brothers maim. So I still know a significant chunk of that poem. And that really struck me. I was the right age. Um, I also feel that experiencing that dislocation of being back in my home country, but not being able to go outside and being foreign to it, I think that was causing an awakening. And those words just struck me. And I understood that prisons were an injustice. I just got it. It was the first adult political issue I really understood. Um, Mm. And I became an abolitionist. That that year we had to do an essay for social studies and all the girls did like Photoshop. And I did woman in prison, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So so it was something that always, always like stuck with me. I didn't become a lawyer or anything. It didn't motivate me that way. But when I began doing organizing, it was always something that I understood undergirded everything that we were doing. Um, And eventually my work as a poet in particular took me into prisons and put me in contact with people who were inside prisons, our radio show that we do. And that really led to the advocacy I do now. Yeah. And we're going to talk about the radio show in a little bit, some interesting political threads to tug on there. But 
First, abolition. Uh, as, as we start this conversation, it is indeed as personal for folks as it is political in terms of both concept and application. How do you define abolition, abolitionism, and how does it manifest for you in the ways you live your life and do your work? This is an interesting question because we've seen um, in the last few years, obviously, much more interest in abolition. Um, in some ways, very positive. You know, I used to say there was like 50 abolitionists in Canada and we all knew each other. Now, you know, there's tens of thousands of people that are interested in this, that are understanding this. Um, but at the same time, I think we run the risk, and Joy James has talked about this, how academic abolition has become and how divorced from the lives particularly of working class black people, but I think also particularly those who live in prisons. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the kind of ironies of abolition is like everyone's an abolitionist now, but still ain't nobody picking up the phone to answer a call from prison. Mm -hmm. So for me, abolition actually does have to be grounded in relationship with those in prison. Um, they are obviously <laughs> original abolitionists and they continue to live in the conditions that we're fighting. So sometimes when we talk about things like yoga for abolition, or, you know, we start doing these very philosophical things, which is fine. But I think if we're not grounded back in, this is about state violence, this is about incarceration and punishment and policing, and our work has to really stay there. Um, we also saw this after 2020, right? Where we spent you know, something that began with George Floyd being killed over property, like a so-called bad $20 bill, like over the capitalist money system, somehow became things like more EDI in banks and, you know, university boards of governors and, you know, really straying away from focusing on like, this is about how the working class in particular, the black masses face violence by state force, you know? So we, I find it, we find it hard to focus, I think. So I really think that abolition has to be focused on that state violence. Um, but then beyond that, it's both a practice and an idea, right? So it's a practice in terms of like how we deal with punishment. So thinking about what gives rise to prisons and policing. Policing is a practice, but it's also an ideology. It, we police and we want, we call police ourselves, right? So those who make us uncomfortable, those who don't fit into the notion of the public, drug users, black people, indigenous people, sex workers, queer and trans people, people with disabilities, um, you know, like these are all the people that are immigrants, you know, these are all the people that have always been seen as outside the public and then can be police. And our ideas behind that are also what we have to confront. Like, why do we call the police when there's someone begging for change outside of Tim Hortons? Why do we call the police when someone sets up a tent in our community? Why do we believe that force is the answer to that? Why does that make us uncomfortable in the first place? Why is it we need to believe in some notion of like cleanliness or comfort or safety? So we have to really address that, which is, of course, capitalism right mm -hmm. um so we have to think of the ideas behind punishment and then really trace uh why they emerge how we participate in them and then how to alleviate them and that's everything so it's everything from environmental justice to how we deal with conflict in our personal lives um to thinking about disposability as a culture to obviously confronting police and prisons and eliminating them um to fighting towards more justice in our communities like landlords and you know like the lack of food security all of that comes under this because what we're talking about is a vision of life where we don't re rely on police and prisons and punishment and criminalization to keep us safe we have a vision of safety that's grounded in well-being and fullness and healing and transformation and collective care 
Well, Jones, I think to, for the framing of this conversation, it's important for my listeners to um, hear from you uh, what we as Americans need to understand in terms of political context for Black and Indigenous folks in so-called Canada that impacts the way in which the road to abolition is being paved there versus some of the trajectories here on U.S. soil. Yeah, so one of the things about Canada, and I'm sure many of your listeners believe this, is we've always been positioned this mythology of the North Star, right? The, the place where the Underground Railroad went to. Uh, many people believe there was no slavery in Canada. In fact, there was slavery for 250 years in Canada. Um, there was a reverse Underground Railroad where people actually fled from Montreal, for example, which had enslavement into the northern United States, which did not at various points. Um, because, of course, people were enslaved under the British Empire and we were under the British Empire until like 150 years ago, you know? Um, so... Canada's part of the problem is not only internally, but internationally, we have an ill-deserved reputation of being kindler and gentler than the U.S., that racism and slavery didn't exist here. And by implication, black people don't truly exist here. So blackness belongs particularly to the American South, which is where segregation and racism in prisons are. And then that's not like that here. Those things don't happen in Canada. Uh, we're, this, we're not the same. And so one of the things that you have to fight in Canada is this deliberate culture of forgetting and naivety in a country founded upon the genocide of indigenous peoples, in a country where residential schools, which was the kidnapping of indigenous children over generations into violent boarding schools, where every kind of abuse was enacted upon children and a genocide was enacted where bodies are being pulled from the ground in Canada of children that were murdered in these schools. And the police were intimately part of that process because uh, it was the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, owned by Disney as a trademark now, um, that you know were, were literally formed to police the, the boundaries, right? Um, the frontiers. There used to be the Northwest uh, Mounted Police. And so they were pushing to the North and pushing to the West. And then as part of that, clearing of the land and assimilating indigenous people was, uh, you know, forcing children into schools. That's a huge part of Canadian history. Um, Canada's always had an extremely policed border. Um, so one of the things, and Robin Maynard talks about this in her book, Policing Black Lives. So that's Robin with a Y, Maynard. Um, and so her book, one of the things she talks about is Canada. Like, if you've ever wondered, like, why didn't a ton of black people just come into Canada? Like, you know, we're on top of the States. So why didn't people just come here during Jim Crow? And we didn't let them, is the answer. And Canada quite deliberately looked at the U.S. and said, we're not going to have those problems here because we're going to stay white. So we won't have racism because we just won't allow black people in. In fact, there were black farmers that came into Alberta on the prairies, out of Oklahoma in particular, because they advertised for farmers. And then like black people show up and they're like, we didn't mean you. So then they literally <laughs> like sent agents into the South and were like, don't come to Canada. It's too cold, which is something we now do in Nigeria. Um, so, like, we literally have this history of sending agents out into black countries and being like, it's cold in Canada, you'll die to discourage black migration. So we had um, limited immigration until, like, really the 1960s in Canada to prevent Canada from not being a white country. Um, so a lot of people don't know this and don't know that there's incredibly long and violent histories of anti-blackness. In my own province, I live in Nova Scotia, the first recorded race riots in North America are in this province. Uh, which is in Shelburne in 1786, where the white people like went on a rampage and burned down the black town because a black man was preaching to white people. And also because um, black loyalists who had come up in the war of 1776 were starting to establish themselves and get businesses. So much like Tulsa, right? When black people start getting a foothold, white people riot and burn them down. That happened in Nova Scotia. Um, 
you know, we had segregated schooling. We have colored sections of the the graveyard. We had segregated movie theaters, segregated pools, all of that well into, in fact, the 80s is when the last segregated school closed in Nova Scotia. So in that context, we have the same policing and prisons, like the same colonial system, the same anti-Black system. Um, But a lot of people don't recognize that. So it becomes difficult to talk about it in Canada, which is always presented as the kinder, nicer, gentler, the world leader in liberalism. It's not like that here country Um, with the United States always presented as this kind of boogeyman to the South. So whenever we fight for something, we're always told that we're um, being contaminated by the U.S., we're just um, like we've been told frequently by our police chiefs that like we're make our, our ex police chief, the one before this one used to call it the Ferguson effect. And that was the idea that we watch news from the states and then believe that we're experiencing anti-blackness and racial profiling. But it doesn't really exist. Like we're just projecting this. And that's a very, very common idea in Canada. You. um you intersperse the prose of this book with poetry, and this feels like a really good time. Poetry and essays, this feels like a good time to ask you to read a piece, and perhaps you could read um, a section from um, the piece in the book called Canada is So Polite. Okay. Well, this is actually an interesting choice because originally that's what the book was called. So the first mm. version of this book was going to be called Canada is So Polite. And some of the essays that are in this book are in that book, but there's a lot more personal stuff as well, a lot more like histories of like, there was a lot about my mom and stuff and it just got pulled because otherwise the book would have been like 400 pages, but uh, this poem survived that cut. Um, So I'll do maybe a couple of minutes of it. It's a longer poem, but here we go. Canada is so polite. It's like someone bumps into us in the Tim Hortons line and we say sorry. We're always saying Sorry. Well, I mean, not to the indigenous people for stealing their land. And Harper only kind of apologized to residential schools while crossing the fingers on his hand. And not to Angelique, who we hanged. And not to everyone we bombed in Afghanistan. And not for the internment of the Japanese or for the deaths on the railroad built by the Chinese. And not for breaking the treaties or racist immigration policies. But we're so polite. We always say please. Well, not to our migrant workers or imported nannies, but they should get down on their knees because Canada is the promised land. No, there was no slavery, just the Underground Railroad. So forget about the ads for runaway slaves in the Halifax newspapers. Canada is a safe haven for lazy immigrants who come here and we just give you welfare earned by hard-working white taxpayers because Canada is so white. Just rosy-cheeked white people playing in the snow and the ice. Just snowshoeing and canoeing all day and night. And okay, those things were stolen from indigenous people too, but we invented hockey, right? Oh, wait, it was black people who invented the slap shot and butterfly goaltending while we hide that all out of sight. And that's why Canada is so quiet. Because everyone in Canada is so nice. And let's not mention the Shelburne race riots or cross burnings or Africville or 2,000 missing and murdered indigenous women. But there's no genocide. It's rude to raise your voice in Canada. And I'll stop there. (laughs) 
So you have to read the book for the rest of the poem. And indeed, you all should read the book. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Elle Jones about her latest book, Abolitionist Intimacies. Elle, notes on prison is one of the sections of your book. Um, you, you talked on this thread earlier in terms of the why and the importance of it uh, when we're talking about abolitionist practice. But I wonder if you could uh, take us back uh, a little bit. When did you start developing relationships with incarcerated people and what role does abolitionist intimacy play in the nurturing of these relationships? Yes, this is really the center of the book. So the title, which I sometimes worry sounds very academic-y, but um, the idea was that I was talking about carceral intimacies. Um, and that was based on things like Lisa Lowe's idea of the intimacies of four continents. And um, Hortense Spillers has done a lot of work on like intimacy during slavery, which is like coercion. But the idea that of course, there was intimate relationships under these incredibly violent systems, like slave owners raped slaves and then had children with them. So like what kind of relationship was that when you shared a child with your rapist and master? And Hortense Spillers talks a lot about this, like the intimacies of power, right? That power is also in your living room. It's not just something you experience out on the street. And then particularly for black women, we can extend that into like child welfare that comes into your home, right? So these intimate forms of policing. So I was calling those carceral intimacies. I'm really looking at the way that the state uses this form of intimacy to police and surveil. So if you visit a prison, like there's a dress code and it's like extremely focused on young women, like the length of your skirt, you can't have um, spaghetti straps, you can't have layers on though, you can have pockets, you can't wear leggings, you can't have anything that shows your shape. Like somebody, one of my friends was like, they should just sell visiting tents, you know? <laughs> like um, you can't have perfume because like, God forbid you should smell too nice. You can't have open-toed shoes. Um, you know, like you can't touch during the visit. You can only briefly hug at the beginning and at the end. And if you touch someone's hand, you can be kicked out. Um, if you go for a personal visit, they will pull everything out of your bag. Like if you have lube, if you have birth control, if you have medication, that will be all over the place and that will be in front of the guards. Obviously, strip searching, which is a legalized form of sexual assault that the state does on people every single day in the name of safety. During COVID, literally like the closeness of the prison that killed people. So I was thinking about those as carceral intimacies. And in opposition to that is what I call abolitionist intimacies, which are our acts of love and care, which are what we have to fight against this system. So when we come into relationship with those in prison, when we organize together, and I don't mean this in a wishy-washy way, I mean it in a radical and grounded way, um, packing the prison boxes, taking the phone calls, driving each other up to visits, when we hand out sanitizer to each other, the ways that families care for each other and take care of each other and give each other information, um, the way that people in prison care for you, the way they care for each other. So those are the intimacies I was talking about in the title. Um, Notes on Prison, which comes very early in the book, was actually a really important piece to me because it's one of those pieces where it shifted uh, some of my writing style. So I was initially doing like an academic dissertation because I had to. And then, oh, sorry, something fell in my kitchen. <laughs> I was initially doing an academic dissertation and I was supposed to be doing, you know, like a fully sort of, and it wasn't on prisons at all. And then I wrote this piece. It was based, I never remember the name of the anthropologist. It's called something like Ordinary something. And I'm terrible because I should know my citation. I had read this book and I, it was just about ordinary anthropology, like everyday anthropology. Um, and I did that to prison. So I started just writing about conversations I was having with people in prisons, just observations, like putting stuff together, like just everything I'd heard people tell me about a toilet or everything people had told me about reading and just putting them together in these little kind of um, sections. And it became this form of like witnessing. Um, one of the things, you know, when you're not 
in prison and you hear from people in prison all the time, you're completely powerless and you're usually useless and helpless. Um, so what I felt I could do is at least record what people were telling me and be true to what people were saying. And that's what that essay is about. But that practice of um, really just taking note of what people were telling me and faithfully documenting it and trying to be true to those stories and then trying to act on it too, right? Like get people the lawyer, help people do the habeas corpus application, at least speak about it and let people know what was happening, do the report, whatever we needed to do. Um, it was really all sort of fueled by this act of listening to people and not just like listening as research or listening as like, I'm the lawyer or the advocate, um, building friendship, which is really important that. Um, over the years, people I've talked to now for over a decade and, you know, we're friends, we're deeply close because we are working together to fight through oppression. And we've both made that choice that we're going to have a friendship and a relationship um, despite the bars between us, which is a very powerful choice in a state that wants you to not have any contact with people in prison, that wants you to believe that people in prison deserve nothing, that wants you to be ashamed of yourself and believe you're somehow pathological or sick if you care about people in prison, um, you know, all of these narratives. So um, the book is really, I'll say this thing that I always say that I went to, when I, like I actually wrote the first draft of this book in Banff, which is just a writer's retreat in Canada, <laughs> funded by oil money, but, you know, uh, and uh, when, you know, you have readings because they have like different authors. And I realized when I was listening to everyone else read, when I was reading, looking at my prose, that I never describe anything visually. I never describe what people look like. And almost everything I talk about starts with someone telling me something. Almost every essay begins with a voice. And I realize that's because so much of this is conducted over phones. Like so many people that I love dearly and have known for over a decade, I have never seen their face. I don't know what they look like, or I've only vaguely seen them in a photograph. Um, but we talk through voice. And I realize this book is very much about that, um, those voices coming forward. Um, Often I realized later that I was coming back to a lot of the same images too. And I didn't realize I'd send them in a poem and then I'd put them in notes over here and then in this journal entry and then in this essay. So these things are obviously haunting me. Um, so in that sense, it's trying to do a, a piece of testimony about the prison conditions in Canada and just be try to be really true to those who have over the years um, opened themselves up, like which is a lot of courage, is a lot of retaliation. People get shipped out for getting on the phones and telling you things. People get their phones cut. They get harassed by the guards. Um, all They get stuck into solitary confinement, which so-called no longer exists, but of course still exists. All these things happen when you come forward and speak to somebody about your life. So I owe it to them to try and do my best to, to give those stories a, a true hearing. And I tried to do that in this book. Another big question. Um... The Prison is Always With Us is, an, is another essay in the book, and in it you say, quote, we build prisons, tear them down, forget their stories, and build another prison, end quote. Talk about the recycling of the violence of the carceral state in the building of societies and communities, and the common themes in terms of targeted demographics, Black and Indigenous folks primarily, that are assaulted with that violence. What is intimate about that exploration? Well, this is the mythology of reform, right? And the thing that we're always told, like, we're too extreme or ridiculous or wanting abolition. And many people went through this trajectory, you know, like abolitionists are often phrased as naive, right? Like, you just don't really understand the true extent of harm, or you've been somehow blinded to believe that these people aren't the true evil that they are or whatever. And in fact, it's the opposite. People become abolitionists after long journeys, often through reform and through other sort of liberal forms of thinking. And when you realize that those things fail, 
Um, I have a long rant that I often give about how every like movie about slavery is like, or like racism is set in a courtroom, you know, like Mississippi burning, Amistad, To Kill a Mockingbird, because they want us to believe that, sure, the system makes mistakes, but it corrects its own mistakes. Just get into the courtroom and justice will occur. And we know that's not the case. The courtroom is where our injustice occurs, you know? So this is the myth of reform that, so I mentioned solitary confinement. That's a really good example because in Canada, we've, we so-called abolished solitary confinement after many, many years of fighting for it. And I, they've reconstituted in a worse form. So now they either call them, if you're in provincial jail, like, so if you're not two years sentence, so you're awaiting trial or you're on immigration, then they call it um, uh, behavioral management units. And it's solitary confinement. Uh, in the prisons, they call them structural intervention units. And because they're not calling them solitary, the rules that existed for solitary, such as like you had to get a lawyer's call after 24 hours, you had to be assessed after five days. If they were going to keep you longer than 15 days, they had to account for it. Like those very bare protections that obviously protected no one, but at least existed on paper, at least gave you something procedural to challenge. Those have now disappeared because it's not solitary confinement. So therefore, we don't need to apply the rules of solitary confinement. And so everybody says it's worse. You're there indefinitely. You have no path to get out. They can, they can do whatever they want to you. And then they just say, oh, it's your behavior. And until your behavior improves, like these kind of things actually killed. They used to do this to women. They called them um, management plans. And they would uh, like literally make women earn toilet paper and tampons and like earn something to clean their cell floor with. And women killed themselves when they were on those plans because like you'd work your way to get toilet paper or something. And then maybe you rolled your eyes at a guard and you'd just be back to, to zero stage. So I say this to say that, um, you know, liberal society loves to believe in reform. It's part of the cycle of an institution, in fact, right? That an institution goes into crisis. We're experiencing this with policing, right? Um, many, many, many more people, not just black people are critical of the police now. Even those who used to say, oh, there's no racial profiling, have like acknowledged that. So now even like conservatives are like, oh, we need reform, you know? Um, and this is part of the lifestyle of how, how a violent institution extends itself. It goes into crisis and then it reforms itself. And then it's like, wait and see, they haven't had a chance to reform. And this is actually how the status quo is maintained. So um, abolition is interrupting that. We recognize that the residential school ended and now we have 50% of federally incarcerated women in Canada are indigenous women. Slavery ended and we have more people incarcerated than existed in slavery. Um, so this form of violence just intensifies and changes its face. And we're supposed to believe it's not like that now, but it's always reconstituting itself. So we can't just reform that. We can't just get more black cops or paint some kinte on the, the walls of the jail or get a black warden or get a little black mental health program in the prison. And now things will be better. It's the underlying system based in the use of our bodies as property through capitalism and our dehumanization that underlies this entire system. Like the entire economic system is built upon the extraction of colonialism, the genocide of indigenous people and the labor of black people. And everything built on it is from that rotten core. So we're going to have to address that. Um, that why is that intimate? Because it depends upon us to, to do that work together. Um, I always say I'm an everyday abolitionist. Um, you know, people always say, oh, you know, again, this is ponies and fairy dust. What are you going to do when all the rapists and murderers get out? And the answer is that we have to build the alternate structures that pull us away from punishment. And we don't have those things and we ain't going to have them tomorrow. So we have to build them. So we have to learn to deal with conflict. 
you know, if we can't get rapists out of our friend circles and confront them, yeah, we're not going to be able to deal with harm on a broader level. So we have to be willing to do that work. We have to work with our elders. We have to be able to talk about sexual violence in our communities and homes. We have to learn how to solve conflict in our activist groups, which is something many people are talking about, how we don't know how to do conflict at all. And then we talk about like disagreement as violence, and we have to learn how to disagree and to, to work through that. We have to learn to cook together, to, to garden together, to walk together, to talk together, all those things. Um, because when we learn to do that, we're orienting ourselves different in the world. And I, again, I don't mean this in some kind of fuzzy way that all you have to do is make a meal together and then crime doesn't exist. <laughs> but we have to be able to intervene with each other and be in relationship to each other to build something other than what we have. Because when we don't know what to do and we don't have those systems built, that's when we have to call the cops, right? That's when we uh, go, oh my God, somebody's threatening me. I don't know what to do. Uh, this person's mentally ill. I'm uncomfortable. The police are all I have. So if we need something else, we have to do that work. And that work is going to be intimate and difficult because we have to unlearn all kinds of things about social class, about ableism, about you know our own sense of righteousness, um, all of those things we have to reflect on and really learn to do differently because we're just steeped in this society, a colonial, racist, violent, patriarchal, homophobic, trans, you know, like this is the society we live in. And so on, on ourselves, you know, Marion Kaba talks about this, the cop in our hearts and the cop in our heads, and then just moving outwards, like working with each other to think about and talk about and put into practice different ways of doing things. Well, Jess, I'm, go I'm going back a little bit because you wrote something that haunted me a bit. Y you've written this book and you're a poet. I'm a writer and a poet. And yet you say in that same um, essay, The Prisoner Was Always With Us, you say, um, what good are words when the judges and juries and crowns who lock the prison down will never read them? Another world is possible. We chant, but on days like this, the probable world, the one we live in, weighs us down. Answer that question for us. What good are the words? Why is it important to keep saying, screaming, or writing them? Yeah, I mean, I, and there's actually quite a bit of the book that's in contention with this. People asked me for a book on prisons for a long time that I, I didn't do. And I always sort of said, why don't you ask the people in prison for that? I'm not in prison. So it's it's a, a precarious spot in that sense, right? To like write about lives that are not your own. Um, there's an ethics to doing that, Um you know, and you may not get that right, but you can't just boldly go around like bandying other people's stories around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a difficulty on that. And then, of course, you know, I've, I've drained so many words writing about this stuff. And yeah, for the large part, nothing has changed. You know, I used to write a weekly column for like five years. I would write every week about the conditions in Burnside, like the local jail, and they've got worse. You know, so you can really feel like, um, you, you know, what role does does writing have? But on the other hand, you know, people have called upon me to write. Um, I've never written anything without permission. Um, it's always been people that have asked me to, can you do this story about the phone system? Can you write a poem about juries? Um, just because people have wanted some kind of testimony and witness to what they're experiencing and often at high cost to themselves. So um, I never, I'm not somebody that thinks that art exists in its own bubble. I very much uh, push back against the idea that art is a, you know, a special group of people. Um, you know, that we are more meaningful than others, but art and writing and it is part of the revolution. Um, it speaks to people in particular ways. Uh, we're able to touch people in a different way. We're able to, people that wouldn't, you know, read a whole book on prisons will listen to a poem about prisons, like a spoken word. Um, 
so I think there's a lot that art can do to intervene in those spaces, not least that people in prison are all writers. Um, you know, the last letter writers in the world are like incarcerated people. So uh, prisoners themselves have high respect for reading and writing and creation because they have to do so in unimaginably repressive conditions. So in that sense, uh, I think our work responds to that. But I never put art above other forms of action. I don't think it's, for me, it exists in a continuum with uh, the actions that we take. Uh, so I wouldn't write about something and then not take steps to do something. Like, I don't think that just telling a story is enough. I also want to see if I can get the legal representation or uh, protest the prime minister or, you know, like find the funding to get them what they need. I think that's also important that art should move us into action. It shouldn't exist. I think in this realm, it can't just exist by itself. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with L. Jones about her latest book, Abolitionist Intimacies. Chapter six is called Abolitionist Intimacies. And you highlight something my listeners may remember, which was when Stock the Stockton Police Department posted a mugshot of a man, Jeremy Meeks. Uh, we know that they do this, right, in an attempt to both highlight the criminality of folks, um, scare folks, and, and also show the public, look, we're doing such a great job catching these so-called criminals. Um but what happened with the posting of this photo was that women found this man attractive um, and responded with notes of <laughs> desire and other commentary based on his looks. He was a prison bay, jail bay. Um, how do these responses raise the question of abolitionist intimacy and why are these types of responses a threat to the state? Oh, yeah, I loved that. So, I mean, that was one of my so people may remember prison bay. So. Uh, as we know, police departments love to do like mugshot Mondays and then everybody will laugh. And it's very classist and ableist. Like it's often people with addictions, you know, and then you're like, look at that meth head or whatever, you know. So it's just there's invite mockery and they're humiliation rituals that are meant to dehumanize and other people who are criminalized. And then, of course, Jeremy Meeks, because he was hot and we can talk about like his hotness, like he was also light skinned. Green so we can obviously analyze how he read as hot within also a colorist racist frame. But, you know, this man was hot and all these women started posting like he can break and enter me anytime. And like, (laughs) (laughs) so then the cops got like really mad because all these women were like, oh yeah, baby. Like, you know, and everybody was just like, oh, like he's so hot. So then, then they literally posted, oh, he's violent. Like he has guns. And all the women started posting back like, So you're like, go eat a Dota pig and all this stuff. So what I'm talking about is how, despite their attempts to dehumanize and shame, this like sexual desire that women had, like not like intervened in that. I was going to say penetrated that, but it was too, you know. Um, And it's just a really interesting example of how the state wants to control everything, even our desire. Like we're not even allowed to think someone in prison is hot. It's like they had, and then they were pathologizing these women. Like what's wrong with women and men, like men were desiring him too. You know, what's wrong with you as a woman if you think this thug is hot? Like there must be something disturbed about you. It's like, no, he's just hot. Um, so yeah, it was a really interesting example of how the state can't control this kind of thing. And they couldn't control that. Um, so people, not abolitionists, not even people that probably wouldn't go back tomorrow and make fun of a different mugshot, you know? But in that moment, because like that moment of sexual desire. And it was so interesting how it had to be controlled and stopped. And there was all these articles written about like the problem with this and all this scolding and moralizing because women found a dude hot, you know what I mean? So I I find that a really interesting study of the way that um, even when we're not naming ourselves abolitionists um, and very few people name themselves as abolitionists, but lots of people undertake these acts that subvert violence or subvert the state narrative 
um, not even necessarily understanding a political frame, but just doing these things. Um, another example, it's not in the book, but it's in an essay I wrote in a book called Until We Are Free uh, with Randy Riley, who I talk about a lot in this book, which is a friend of mine who's still facing a wrongful conviction. And one of the things I talk about in that essay, it's called Many a Thousand Gone, is that um, you know when he went to his mother's funeral from the prison, uh, you know they made him go in orange and chains and he, this is in a small community, Cherry Brook. Uh, it's an African Nova Scotian community, so a historic community. And when he got to the church, you know, he's standing there in chains and the sheriffs are guarding him. And the community just like came up to him and began hugging him, kissing him, putting his children in his arms. And the sheriffs couldn't do anything. They couldn't fight back. They couldn't fight a whole community. They, there's nothing they could do standing on ancestral land, surrounded by like 200 black people in their own community, in their church, at a funeral of one of their children, like you know, the mother of their, you know, a, a child at his mother's funeral. The, like it wasn't going to happen. The, the guards were helpless and they just had to stand back while the community showered love. None of those people would call themselves abolitionists. But that was one of the most political acts I've witnessed because the community said, not today, not in our house. No. You are not going to criminalize and other this young man. You're not going to monitor him. We're going to love him and we love him and you're not going to do a thing about it. So I'm always, I think those moments are so powerful. Um, they're very extremely radical moments. Um, so yeah, I, that's part of what I trace through the book um, is like the love on the front lines that we have. In many ways, it's a book about black women's activism, right? Like the love we have for each other, the love that we have as we like lie down on deportation bans and as we stand in front of prime ministers and as we uh, risk our lives together to do this work, it's profound and radical care that moves us and that can move us all. I don't want to let you go without talking about your radio show and, and its work. And um, in the chapter, Erasure and the Slow Work of Liberation, um, you talk about the fact that with your show, you intentionally respond to requests from folks incarcerated in terms of content covered or music played. Um, and and in, in terms of the music, right, often hip hop um, music, uh, gangster rap, uh, the response from white folks, uh, for whom the show is not for, um, being one of outrage or disgust. Um, first, the importance of honoring the requests of those inside as we do work on their behalf. You touched on this earlier. But second, talk ab about, as you put it, quote, the imposition of a policing gaze upon music and the music choices of incarcerated people demonstrates how people beyond the prison designate themselves as cops and take on the role of disciplining and controlling those marked by criminalization, end quote. Yeah, we're actually, I mean, there's like literally been a court case about this, right? Like the use of rap lyrics in court. Uh, yeah. So... You know, this is actually a thing, right? Where crowns be like, oh, he said he had a gun. <laughs> it's like so. Um, so like, it has very serious consequences. But uh, we always, and this is like in the tradition of much political radio, you know, you're not necessarily dealing with, um, you're dealing with an audience that's politicized in many ways. People in prison are deeply politicized. Like they're living in oppression. They understand what a guard is. You know, like you don't need to explain a university essay to someone to have them understand what their oppression is. But they're not necessarily like consciously politicized. Some are extremely so and some aren't. So one way on our radio show that we obviously like lure people in to listen is like playing the songs that people want to hear. So somebody will like listen through 10 minutes of discussion on something political to get to the song they want to hear. So just on that political education level, it's extremely important. But uh, we also, you know, if you're living in a situation where you don't control, like you have to take a shit with someone watching you, you can't 
ask, you can't go for a walk. You can't get a food that you want. Like there's nothing you could ask for. So the one thing you may be able to ask for and get in the week is, can I hear this song that I want to hear right now? Um, so we always did our best to honor those requests. And of course, what people wanted to hear is music that spoke to how they were living. So like, you know, a lot of like Lil Boozy was very popular at the time. Um, you know, like Locked Up, like all kinds of stuff, you know, like Send a Kite, always popular. You know, songs that are like, Kevin Gates, people used to love Kevin Gates back in the day. So, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And it doesn't matter if I like it or not. I mean, a lot of times I don't like it, but that's not the point. It's the point is that people are living in conditions of deep oppression and you can meet a need of theirs. And like people, white people would just be so enraged that we were playing this music. Get it, like offended about hearing the N-word, like it's not speaking to you, you know? And tried to get the show canceled and like uh, these people have nothing to say. This is filth. This shouldn't be on the air, which just shows how uh, everything, you know, like people just need to monster and dehumanize and exclude people. And then some of the other arguments we get is like, oh, they're in jail. They shouldn't be like listening to songs about drugs. <laughs> like these very, like, very moralistic. Like, oh, uh, I can't believe that you're playing songs about drug dealing and like you have drug deals. I'm like, so they can also read James Patterson books about serial killers. Like, what's your problem, you know? Um, so I always said, and we always said on the show that the obscenity is prison. You know, mm. that the obscenity mm-hmm. is state violence. It's not f- or sh- or whatever. Like you're listening to a caller that's literally calling without a mattress and medication. And your concern is the language they use to express that. Like it's such a form of liberal civility. That's just like absolutely disgusting and violent. So we always push back on that. Um, and it was also an organizing platform for us. I mean, that's how I learned about people's conditions. It started on radio that initially it was just like playing music and like reading poetry and then people would be calling in, but you'd end up talking to them. And just in the matter, of course, of sharing their lives, people would say, oh, this thing is happening. And me being a person of action would be like, well, that shouldn't be happening and would try and do something. 90% of the time you fail. But I always felt that like you should at least ask a question. You should at least fire off an email. You should at least confront. You should at least make a note that this thing happened. Um, And that was really how I started doing advocacy and like, um, you know, things that built into some like large campaigns was just, I couldn't just sit by and not try at least when someone called me, but it was all through us talking together and through the radio, which has a long, honorable revolutionary uh, history, you know, Radio Free South Africa, Cuba Radio, you know, these like every revolutionary movement has been accompanied by this underground r- radio that has played music and given news that otherwise you wouldn't hear. And that has been the case and is the case across prisons as well. Final question, Elle. Um, love is a word that pops up often throughout the book. Another word that pops up often throughout the book is hope. Um, trying to convey hope for the folks you're talking to on the inside, trying to hold on to that hope for yourself. The role of hope in abolitionist intimacy. Yeah, we have to believe. I mean, you know, we, we're always the ones we get accused of, the ones who go too far, the radicals, the arsonists, you don't, nothing's good enough for you. You always complain. You know, there's always a lot of shaming that goes on. Uh, particularly if you're a radical black woman, you know, like when we speak out and you're always discouraged and made to feel like, you know, you're doing something wrong or uncivil. Um, But we do these things because I fundamentally do believe we wouldn't push for a better world if we didn't believe it was possible. Um, And that means that you have to stay on the neck, you know, like every day you have to push against injustice. 
Um, but we do so because I do believe we've, we've had a lot of wins. We've had a lot of failures, but we have won. We've won big deportation cases when people told us you can't beat a deportation in Canada. I fought wrongful conviction cases when people told me that there was nothing that could be done. I've got food on Ramadan when people have said no. And then I've tried and not had a result either, but at least I answered the phone. At least I walked with the person through it. At least I cared. And that's sometimes the most you can do. And I find people in prison extremely generous and they recognize that. Um, they recognize that you tried. They recognize that at least you cared. And, and maybe that's enough to get that person a bit of hope through the next day that they're not totally forgotten about. So, you know, we say, you know, we are unstoppable and other world is possible, like a very common chant. And we have to believe that. Um, you know, Marian Kaba says hope is a discipline. So, again, these things aren't when we talk about hope and love, we're not talking about the way liberals talk about it, which is shut up and just love. You know, Martin Luther King said love white boys and girls and hold hands. I'm like, I'm not talking about that. Or like just be hopeful and stop being mean. I see hope and love as the things that undergird us putting our bodies on the front lines. Uh, when people go and defend someone's tent in an encampment with their body and get beaten down for it, that is through love and hope, you know. So um, we have to believe that there's something beyond this. We have to believe that we we can win these battles. And the only thing we have is that belief. Um, we have to outwork the state. When they're sleeping out after they come home from their bureaucratic job, we have to be working because the only thing we can do is outwork the state. And if we do that and then like build more and more together, then we do have the chance, you know, it's slow, but we can turn, like our fingers can turn these locks, you know? So not in our lifetimes, maybe not even, you know, um, like it, it's, I mean, like Randy's case, that's been like a decade, you know, it's still ongoing and we still have to fight it, but we have to not give up on that. Um, they can't grind us down. We can't let them wear us out. We can't let them uh, make us believe that, um, you know, this is pointless. Neoliberalism wants us to believe there's no way out. You know, like they're in your phone. They they can survey you. They can watch you, you know. So I think a lot of us are taught to believe like there's nothing you can do. So just stay on Twitter, you know, just tweet about it because there's nothing you can do. We have to fight that. Um, there are cracks and we have to find them and we have to pull on them relentlessly. And we're going to close it out on that hopeful note. I don't get to do that with very many interviews on this show. So thank you. Y'all have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today uh, is Elle Jones. Elle Jones is a poet, journalist, professor, and activist living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She teaches at Mount St. Vincent University, where she was named the 15th Nancy's Chair in Women's Studies in 2017. She was Halifax's Poet Laureate from 2013 to 2015. She's the author of Live from the African Resistance, a collection of poems about resisting white colonialism. Her work focuses on social justice issues such as feminism, prison abolition, anti-racism, and decolonization. And her latest book that we've been talking about today is Abolitionist Intimacies. Elle Jones, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and 
All of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.